I want to welcome everyone to episode number five of 50 Year Flashback of Wrestling at MSG Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, the building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back, as always, on these shows, the man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting in August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? I should say, um, I guess Happy New Year is a little bit too old now, but this is our first show since the beginning of December, since December 6th. So we're back at it. A new year, 2022, in a country ravaged with all kinds of stuff going on right now. And uh, we're sitting here. I'm in Nashville. You're out on California. You're in California time. And hey, it's great to be back uh, in the new year to uh, begin what is going to prove to be an interesting year for wrestling at Madison Square Garden and my involvement in it as a fan at this point. If you want to hear this episode before the 50th anniversary, all you got to do is go to our Patreon. It's Patreon dot com slash John Rizzi. John, I know that you're always doing stuff with Patreon. Besides getting the show early, what else is available for patrons? I sell Tommy Bahama shirts there. And uh, no, actually, <laughs> actually uh, we have uh, right now for patrons at patreon.com slash John Rizzi uh, over 170 different items of uh, historic content for the fans to listen to, watch, uh, I send them vintage magazines. There's so much going on at Patreon.com. What we do with this podcast is we really release it a week earlier than uh, it goes out to the general public. And we love uh, and want to thank everybody for the great response so far. But uh, the Patreon is growing. It grows each and every month. I find a lot of rare audios, you know, in my archives, there's just so much content there. So for those of you who are listening to not only this show, but the sister podcast, which is John Arisi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight, there is some amazing content up there right now that kind of coincides with what we're covering on the podcast, on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. For example, in January of 1992, Joel Goodhart went out of business. He went out of business right before the promoted match between Buddy Landell and Buddy Rogers, Battle of the Nature Boys. I was able to find Joel's uh, last radio show from WIP in Philadelphia, and uh, that's up on Patreon right now where he discusses he's going bankrupt. And coincidentally on the podcast, we have Buddy Rogers on there talking about the show being canceled. So it's a really cool way to do that. And as people listen to this one, we're covering Kip Fry being uh, uh, named uh, the new executive vice president of WCW. Uh, I was invited to a press conference in Kansas City in January of 1992. So that entire press conference is up there for patrons uh, with Kip and Dusty Rhodes, ironically. You know, Dusty uh, was the booker. Uh, So and that also is going to be covered on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show. I also put up photo sets. I put up rare eight millimeter films. There's uh, archive audio from the early 70s. There's just so much there. Patrons uh, really have a place where they can relive wrestling history. And with this podcast, and as we get deeper into this year, uh, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff that I'm going to be posting up there. And I'll let everybody know. Uh, I know later this year, Pampero Furpo, who was a you know, just one of the major stars of pro wrestling enters the worldwide wrestling federation for the only time. And then he has this match with Pedro Morales and he has a match with Strongbow and he makes his debut on tonight's, uh, on today's episode rather. But I have rare audio of him being interviewed before the Morales match, before the Strongbow match. And it's uh, a really cool stuff. And that's, uh, and that's up on Patreon as well. So each week, every Sunday, there's new content being uh, being released. I always put it up there about 6 p.m. every Sunday night. So people get the podcast early. They get the original archived episodes of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And right now we have episode one up there from April 9th, 1989, right through the current week. And, you know, of course, people listen to this podcast weeks later, but there's 145 complete unedited Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio shows on Patreon right now. Entree is five bucks a month. For five bucks a month, you're going to get the podcast early. This podcast and the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, it comes out early. You get all the archived shows for five bucks a month. If you want to upgrade it to 10 bucks a month, then you get all the bonus audio and the early releases of the podcast. We have a $25 level, which you could then see videos, vintage videos, uh, as well as the other perks. 
And for those $25 members, I also send you a uh, vintage wrestling magazine every month. Uh, and then we go up to a $50 level uh, and you get eight millimeter films and you get two wrestling magazines a month and all the other perks. And we do Zoom calls. Uh, and then for your highest tier, which is a hundred bucks a month, and we do have a few people that are in that tier, they get so much, they get photo sets from me that are unwatermarked. So each month I'll put up a photo set of Bruno San Martino from the 70s or Bruce Brody from the 70s or superstar Billy Graham. Each month for those $100 a month patrons, they're going to get really cool photo sets that are unwatermarked that they can download. Wow. And, and I love how there's different categories, there's different levels. So if you can afford a lot or afford a little, there's always something there on the Patreon. Yeah, it's just something for everybody. And like I said, you know, um, five bucks gets you in the door every month. And that's uh, Starbucks coffee costs more than that. So <laughs> yes, yes, it does. It costs a lot more than that. And I also, I, we talked about this before. I do want to come on to some of your zooms because I know that a lot of fun. You get on with the zooms, and people can ask yeah. questions about stuff and go over history together. And I did a little time in ECW, not as a wrestler. I drove some yeah. people, so I had some stories about that. You drove the chic around, my friend. Yeah, I did. And and we talked about the whole fireball incident. But that's for Patreon. That's for Patreon. Yeah. That's not today. Yeah. That's for Patreon. Yeah, I, I think we're going to schedule that. You know, you're 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 bringing it out there, and we're going to schedule that. Because I think the patrons would love to pick your brain a little bit about that history, especially those fascinating stories with the Sheik. I mean, when you told me those for the first time, and I didn't have a clue that after you met him at the convention, you guys kind of became friends with him, you and Richie Garcia. And you have some really cool stories about the Sheik and some of your escapades with him. So I think patrons would love that. And we have a really a cool group of people that come on every month. And uh, they're very, uh, very in the know wrestling fans. And a lot of them listen to the Pro Wrestling Spotlight from years ago. And a lot of them are very aware of what we cover here with this podcast. Nice. Well, join the community, hear the history, patreon.com slash John Arizzi. There you go. All right. Patreon. Do it. All right. We're starting the year 1972, but I want to look back at 1971. John, it was your first year going to live events at Madison Square Garden. Just a little background. The WWWF had 10 house shows at Madison Square Garden in 1971. Uh, no shows in April or September. Out of the 10 shows, seven of them were sellouts. Now, a sellout in Madison Square Garden at that time was 20,000 fans. Their best house was December 6, 1971, with 22,091. That was the Fred Blassie, uh, Pedro Morales rematch with the Roman Gladiator match. Well, Roman Gladiator, as they say, it wasn't really a well, Roman Well, they just gladiator. put that as in an advertising, I mean, because it really wasn't a Roman Gladiator death match. Nobody was dragged around the ring and put on a stretcher and carried out. So that was false advertising. Yeah, and uh, the smallest crowd of 1971 was uh, 16,720. Your first show, August 30th, 1971, maybe that's why you're able to get tickets because it, was it wasn't a big show. It was Stan Stasiak's first appearance against yeah, Pedro yeah. Morales. Yeah, that was... Uh, uh, see, the thing is, I started spreading the word, Tim. You did. You did. Once I started spreading the word, then all of a sudden you have 22,000 people there in December. So I was like uh, the town crier. I, I would say the Pied Piper of wrestling. I would be. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good uh, that's a good way to put it. I, I, I definitely made the thousands and thousands more, more people aware of it. I used to run around the streets of Manhattan just saying, go to the wrestling matches and 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 just letting them know. And 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 believe it. I mean, look, listen, look what happened. Twenty two thousand people in at the end of the year in 1971 from when you started. Look at how much you did. And no, no yes. credit. No credit ever comes for that. Um, and their largest gate, the largest gate for the WWWF was July 24th, 1971. Their first and this is impressive. Their first hundred thousand dollar gate. At Madison Square yeah. Garden. Wow, that, that's uh, pretty impressive. That was big money back then. That was huge money back then. That was probably the last appearance. That was the last appearance in, in 71 of Bruno San Martino. He took mm -hmm. on uh, Blackjack Mulligan. And at the time, I, I was reading this up, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Pedro Morales defeated Luke Graham and Tarzan Tyler to retain the WWF Tag Team Championships. And like in an earlier episode, we talked about how Tyler and Graham got those Tag Team Championships. It was in uh, in a far-off country, as they, as they would say. Yeah, it was. It was was kind of a phantom country. It was, I think it was Brazil. We talked about Rio de Janeiro. Or, or... Rio, Rio de Janeiro, yeah. Well, I wanted to get back to the gate because um, going back in history, talking about history with you, trying to understand more about things, the gate, um, the bigger the venue, the bigger the gate. Uh, back in the 70s, tell me if I'm wrong about this. If you didn't work, you didn't get paid. Is that right? Uh, well, yeah. Everybody got uh, a percentage of that gate based on the position they were on the card. So your your payoffs might have been, you know, 50 bucks 
if you're in an opening match or a hundred bucks, 150 bucks, whatever it would have been back then up to several thousand dollars for the uh, main eventers. Is it true that back in the seventies, they would split it up three ways at the garden, uh, like 33%, 33% would go to MSG and advertising. 33% would go to the WWF offices and then 33% would go to the wrestlers. Does that sound correct to you? And that sounds about right. Yeah. And like bigger wrestlers, like, you know, like a Pedro or Gorilla would get like maybe six to 8% of the 33%. But, but those numbers are, are, are roughly in the ballpark. I'm just trying to think in my head because I, I think we think today, like, hey, when wrestling's coming, it's coming on a weekend, it's coming on a Friday, it's coming on Saturday. They did wrestling all week long back in those days, right? Yeah. I mean, it was uh, four or five shows a week. At the time. And they the big shows were probably like, you know, you had the Boston Garden, you had Madison Square Garden, you had Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, Baltimore. Baltimore. Baltimore was big. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Washington uh, was another market for them. And um, I, I've been getting some correspondence from people who were talking about how the WWF used to go to Bangor, Maine also. You know, you always hear the stories about um, Memphis wrestling, how they used to travel so much. And I never yeah. thought about like the, the New York, the WWF traveling that much. But I guess they really did because that's that's a distance going from like Jersey to Bangor or even from, say Baltimore to Bangor. That's a huge distance. Yeah. The guys would get in their cars and they would just travel to all these uh, towns. And, you know, they used to run, you know, the big arenas. Uh, then they'd run, you know, these little these barns, you would call them. I mean, these armories and uh, civic centers. Uh, so those uh, the capacity of those venues were kind of twenty five hundred, you know, maybe five thousand max. And they would load those shows up with maybe four to six names, and then the rest would be kind of the jobbers. They did it in a certain way, so you wouldn't say, I'm going to be in Baltimore one night, you're going to be in Bangor the next. You had to work your way up. You worked There was a, there was a circuit. Yeah, there was a routing. I believe there was routing involved. And, um, uh, but, you know, back then, you know, you'd do those circuits, and then, you know, you'd go to another territory, as yeah. we spoke about. It's, it's crazy to think that back in the day, they had to do all this stuff. They didn't have cell phones. You couldn't get a hold no. of someone. If they're not in the office, they're not there. So if you wanted to call somebody on a Saturday, you had to have their home number to call them on a Saturday. So it was a lot different. And the way we talk about it, I just want people to understand that this is a different time in, in the mm -hmm. country and everything and in how they dealt with stuff. So if you're going to go someplace, if you're driving someplace and you you know your car breaks down or something like that, it's a whole ordeal to get in touch with somebody saying you're going to be late or you're going to miss a show. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, how could you do it? I mean, uh, you know, there's always uh, weather delays. Uh, there's uh, cars that break down. I mean, there's just so many things. It was such a different time. For all of us, I mean, well, you weren't that you weren't around back then. Um, you know, I was kind of. I didn't. Just, I wasn't. I wasn't doing much at that time. But I was. I was around. I just wasn't doing much. I was like four or five. Oh, you were. You were like you were. You're a little toddler. Yeah, I was like I, I was born in '67, so I was a little toddler at the time. But I, I was. Anyone ever call you little Timmy? No, 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 no. I was never little. I was always a big kid. Always a big fat mm -hmm. kid. Never, never, never. No one ever called me little. I was never little anything. <laughs> so no. okay. Well, let, let's let's get let's get to the seventy. Let's get to seventy two. I just wanted to go back and and I just think about that when when we're listening when you're listening to the show when we're talking about things. It's just things were so much different back then, and there weren't that oh, many yeah. highways. You're talking like oh we're going on the highway. There were two lane highways. So two lane highways from here to Bangor. If, if there's traffic, you're just stuck. You can't take alternate routes. You can't turn around and turn on your GPS. You had the maps. You had to pull out the map. And look at the map and see where you're going and make sure you're going to. Yeah. And then timing. How, how the, the road atlas, the road atlas. Yeah, that was big. So when I came out to California, I came out in like 2007. They were still using those books, those road atlas books to find your way around. Because I was a PA at the time, uh, which is a production assistant. And they would send you on errands. They said, hey, go to go to Burbank and pick this up. Well, I had no idea where Burbank is. So you pull out this book and you're going through it. Oh, OK, I get on the five and uh, this is how I'll find Burbank. I just yeah, couldn't that was, was it an antiquated. I mean, now with the GPS. You just kind of like you're you're there and and you and you go. I mean, I I remember I used to travel a lot back then, and you have you have to have that road atlas to map out. And you'd write out you know in front of you, so you on a piece of paper, you'd say, all right, I have to take this highway and this. And but it was hard. Like what exit? I mean, it was just it was crazy. Yeah, I could I couldn't even imagine. Like today, you know, just think you use your cell phone for so much. You use it for okay, where am I going? You type it in your cell yeah. phone. Who am I calling? You just punch in. You know, I'm punching in John. Right. I don't know your number, John. I have it well, in my I cell mean, phone. Yeah, of course. But and, and then you have voice activation when you're in the car. You just press the, you know, you press, you know, call Tim Poutre. And that's it. Where back then it. you have to remember it or you grab Remember the my mom still has one. This is why I brought it up. My mom still has that phone book. You know, your, your little address book has your address oh, yeah. in it and your phone number. And it, it crosses off people when they move. 
Yeah, my mom. Yeah. My mom still uses that. She's eighty-four years old. She still uses that. God bless her. God bless or her. The or the roller decks. Roller decks. That's another one. So if you're traveling, if you're a wrestler and you're traveling, of course, if you've been to these places before. But if you're new in the territory, you better jump in a car that somebody knows where they're going, or you're going to be late. Yeah, the roads. Uh, the roads were typical, where a lot of pranks were pulled. A lot of you know guys were getting ribbed. Uh, it, it was like it was an interesting time, and 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 there's still a little of that today. A uh, little bit, tiny bit. Uh, but you know, the territories were a place where um, uh, you had to kind of live in your car in a lot of ways. And you know what? They also talk about the education of the road, being on the road with veterans, going in the car with veterans, driving the veterans around, learning from the veterans. You don't get that today. And that's how a lot of the guys built up their character, built up their moves, built up their storyline, is driving in the car for hours with other wrestlers and bouncing things off each other. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. Well, let's get into 1972. Madison Square Garden, January 31st, 1972. Attendance? Sellout, 22,076. Just missed, just missed the record by um, a few people right there. Uh, John, we I probably get this, you got the tickets the same way you normally do, or did you buy the tickets uh, the month before? How did you get your tickets for this one? Uh, I think for this show and, and for the first uh, four shows of, uh, of this year, uh, 1972, January, and then February 21st, March 13th, April the 17th. Uh, it was kind of a interesting time for me. I wasn't sitting ringside for the first four shows of uh, 1972. It could have been a financial thing. You know, I, I was in the loge uh, for those uh, four shows. And, you know, quite frankly, the guy that I went to all the shows with Frank Favalli, I think there was a show that he couldn't go to. And one show I took my dad. We'll get into all of that. But I was, you know, enriched as a fan at that point. I had gotten a permission slip signed by Freddie Blassie. I was in that. Uh, time period of, uh, you know, figuring out what I was going to do now that I had the official permission to uh, start the fan club. And I might not have even gotten the permission slip back from Jeff Walton by the time this show came out uh, in, in January, rather, of 72, because you had to send something to California in the mail and then you wait and then you get a package back. So for me, you know, I fell in love with it from that first house show and it didn't matter who I was taking I had to go with someone. I don't think I ever went by myself. I always found someone to go with. And uh, for January 72, I don't remember who I was there with, but I do remember I was in the uh, uh, the loge, the section 100s at the garden. And, and OK, so if people are looking at it, you have the, the floor section and goes up a little. The loge is the next level up. Is that right? Yes. OK. Yeah. Then that, they go all the way up to, I think, section 400s. Uh, so it was ringside, the 100s. Uh, which were purple seats. They sell them by color. Uh, then they'd have orange and green and blue. So each level had a different color. And the ringside seats were brownish. But uh, I remember the purple seats. I used to call them the purple seats, which was loach. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, going back to the garden, I I've been to a lot of venues for concerts, for wrestling matches, for boxing matches, different things. What are your best seats? Now, unless you're sitting like ringside, and even when you're sitting ringside, it's like going if, – if you go to theater, you don't want to sit straight up front because you're going to be missing stuff. What are the best seats at the Garden to see a match, to catch everything of the match? I always loved Loge for concerts or, rest, you know, the wrestling because if you weren't taking photographs, I mean, there was no reason. I didn't like looking over people. Uh, so if you're in ringside, if you're not in the first three or four rows, then it gets a little problematic because people are standing and you can't see and you got to keep getting up and down. Loads, you can sit there and you can just like, all right, you have a good close uh, proximity to the ring and the purple seats, section 100s. So that was that was cool. I, you know, obviously I wasn't taking any photographs in the first quarter. I remember taking photographs in the May show of 72. That's when I shot a picture that we'll talk about later that actually became the first picture I ever had uh, published in a wrestling magazine. But uh, I didn't take photographs. Uh, I did take photographs. I, I brought an Instamatic camera there, not for this particular show, but I did. And, and, and it was kind of, um, I remember the King Curtis. Uh, we'll get into that. Uh, I remember uh, my little three and a half by three and a half picture from the Instamatic camera, and I just wasn't happy because they were far away. Yeah, yeah, there's no zoom on the Instamatic camera. And also, going back to Madison no. Square Garden back then, there's no big yeah. screen. So if you're in like oh, no. row like 16, it sounds really cool, but yeah. 
you, it's pretty far away. You're lucky. You're lucky. The PA announced uh, the the PA. You could hear the PA back. <laughs> it was a, it was a different time. Let's go to our first match. You said him before. King Curtis defeated Tomas Marin in three minutes thirty nine seconds. Yeah, King Curtis was coming in to get a big push. Captain Lowell Banner was his manager, and uh, this was right around the time I believe him and Baron Sakluna were getting ready to uh, beat uh, Carl Gotch and Rene Goulet. But on this particular show, Rene uh, Goulet and Gotch were still the champions. But Curtis was teaming with Cicluna. He was coming in for a push, and he was a maniacal guy, a, a true uh, psycho uh, inside the ring in his character. And uh, he was kind of a psycho outside the ring, too. And I was looking up King Curtis. I was like, I had to look up to see what this guy looks like. I didn't know what he looked like. I, I was looking him up. And then I found out that King Curtis in the late 80s, early 90s, went to the WWF and was a manager, just like Captain Lou Albano. He was the wizard, and he was yes. the manager of Kamala and Sika at one time. Yeah, yeah. He always had a very eccentric, very uh, out there persona and character. And he was like that his entire career. I mean, he was very unpredictable and he's very scary looking. He was a guy that also used to like to uh, gig himself. I mean, you know, to blade. And his forehead was uh, was was just kind of like mush, uh, just filled with all these gig marks and scars that look like a little bit of a roadmap. And didn't he go down to Florida at some time and work with Kevin Sullivan? He and Kevin were dear friends. I mean, they were freaking tight. Those guys were really best of friends. And Kevin brought them down there. And they, they did extensive work together, those two. Now, uh, speaking of King Curtis, um, when, before he became a manager, he had a manager, Captain Lou Obama. you have any good Captain Lou stories? I have a lot of Captain Lou stories. <laughs> well, I'm sure King Curtis learned how to be a manager with the great Captain Lou. So any, any, can you yeah. give us one a good Captain Lou story offhand? Like, say, the first interaction I had with him? Yeah. What was the first interaction you had with Captain Lou? You were jumping ahead here because it was a photograph that I shot of Captain Lou uh, when he uh, worked against Strongbow in May of 72. And I got the picture back and it was like he was just all bloody and he was dazed and there were two security cops next to him. And I printed out a couple of them. I always used to see Lou, like when the crowd first started coming in, he'd be by the dressing room entrance, just with a little cigar in his mouth, just standing there looking at the crowd coming in. And, you know, we'll go over this in a future episode. But my first interaction with him, I had an extra copy of that picture. I, I ran over to him and, and gave him a copy of it. And he really liked it. And he signed the back of my picture, which I still have. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, I'm sure King Curtis learned how to be a manager from the great Captain Lou Albano. He probably did. I mean, that was one of his uh, mentors probably when it came to that, and uh, I wouldn't discount Kevin Sullivan as well. Fantastic. Uh, match number two, Victor Rivera defeated Stan Stasiak in 12 minutes, 14 seconds. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, Stasiak was getting phased out. He was ready to go back to either Portland, where he spent most of his time uh, up in the Northwest. And Rivera always was a very popular uh, wrestler catering to the Puerto Rican audience at Madison Square Garden. So he defeated Stan. That was not surprising just because Stasiak was on his way out. And Rivera was always uh, not an A level, but he was always a solid B level uh, wrestler that would uh, fill nicely on the undercard. Yeah, and it was a good and 12 minutes. Is that, that's a pretty long match for that time. So uh, Stan Stasiak, his six month run. So with his six month run, and this is how they used to do it back in the day. They don't do it. They don't do it today because there's no place to go. But you no, get your, there's no there's no territories. There's no territories. So back in the day when there were territories, you come in, you get your big TV push, then you get your title run in the territory, and then, for lack of a better word, you job your way out of the territory. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, typically what you would do is like you would go uh, against Morales and then after that, uh, that finale, you know, whether there's one, two or three matches, depending on, you know, the rematches, then when you're done with that, before you job your way out, you'll go around the circuit. So they'll do a Morales-Stasiak match in Boston or Philadelphia and Baltimore. So they basically do that same run and then. Typically, you'd come into the garden and, you know, you would do a job for somebody and then uh, that would be the end of it. I'm wondering where was the first place they did it? Like, where was the first place? Was it the garden the first place they did it or the last place? I'm wondering, you know, what I'm saying it did, did what? Well, did that mat like if they're going to do a match together, they're like, OK, this is going to be our our first match together. Where would they do? Where would it start? Would they say, okay, we're going to do it first in Boston, and then we're going to do uh, Connecticut, and then we'll do this well, place, you know, or something like that? Well, here's what they would do, um, you know, not certainly for everyone, but uh, typically they, they might do a tag team match. 
where it'd be Stasiak and a partner against Morales and Rivera or something just to kind of get comfortable with working each other. But these guys were professionals. It's the same as today. You know, you, you work out what you're going to do. You get the word from the booker and the promoter. You're going to go this and it's going to last this long. And then you guys work out your spots. Typically, the finish is always dictated, uh, but, you know, by, by the powers that be. But that's kind of the way it worked. I mean, it was just kind of like, and these guys were pros. They know what they were doing. It's just amazing to me to, to think about uh, when you bring a guy into the territory and then you, you wrestle him a couple times. And, and every yeah. time you wrestle him, you get better and better with him. Yeah. You know, you get to know each other's uh, strong points and weak points. So, I mean, that was a good way to do it. I, I, I do remember that uh, before San Martino and Billy Graham had their singles run, their, fir their first really big singles run, there was a tag team match in Boston at the Boston Garden where it was Billy Graham coming in to team up uh, with uh, Spiros Arion against uh, Bruno San Martino and Dominic DiNucci. And uh, in the third fall of that match, I never forget it. Billy came off the top rope with a knee and he pinned Bruno one, two, three in the middle at Boston Garden. So I was like, hmm, they're going to give Billy a big, pretty big push. But uh, I believe that was sometime in 76. And what's so cool about that is you get to test things out. Oh, let's see how he does. Let's see what the crowd's reaction is. Where you don't get that yeah. today. You get one yeah. shot. Here it is. If you don't get it, you don't get it. But back in the day, you can do these little things and try different things and say, hmm, this is working. Oh, we're going to. And then when you finally get to the garden or you get to, you know, Philadelphia, you can say, here it is. And here's our final. This is what we're right. doing with this. Right. But it was it was really uh, much more long term planning back then. These guys knew, especially the guys that were coming in as heels from the outside. Uh, they knew their start date. They knew their finish date. They knew exactly how many months they were going to be in the territory uh, before they said goodbye. It's not like they're just jumping to another territory. They they were they got what they wanted. They came in. They got their title shots. They got their money. And now working their way out, they're going to do a good job because they want to come back another time. Yes, that's very, very true. And uh, and McMahon Sr. was uh, uh, just really uh, a man of his word. And, uh, you know, he was chintzy. He was cheap, like most of them. But uh, he was at least honest with these guys. Yep. It was straight shooter. I always hear good things about him. Everything was done with a handshake. Let's go on to match number three. It's a tag team championship match. The champions, Carl Gotch and Rene Goulet, defeated my guys, the Rugged Russians. I just like the name, the Rugged Russians. I don't know who these guys were, but Ivan and Igor, the Rugged Russians, in a two out of three falls tag team match, um, lasted 18 minutes, 46 seconds. Yeah, the Russians were um, on their way out as well. Uh, this might have been their last appearance at the Garden, but they were a solid team, solid heel team. Gotch and uh, Goulet were the champions at the time, although short-lived. I mean, when you look at them winning the title at Madison Square Garden and then losing it just like two or three months after that to Curtis and Cicluna, this was a way to kind of get them a nice victory and to uh, a bit of fond farewell to the rugged Russians. Match number four, Pampero Furpo defeated Mario Soto in eight minutes, 16 seconds. Oh, yeah! Now, a lot That's of people, how per, that was Purpo used to say that. And now and, people don't understand that was before Macho Man. He he created that. He was the guy that did. I, I had a really great Zoom with his daughter, uh, Mary, uh, when he passed away. He was an amazing performer. He was uh, an incredible, charismatic guy with this bushy hair and the shrunken head he used to carry with him. But he was making his debut at the garden and he was also somebody like mcmahon probably brought him in and said hey listen we're going to give you some of these uh, victories at the garden then you're going to find morales in may and it was all planned out and uh soto was one of those guys that would win on television most of the time and then he would be you know because he he was getting all these victories and people were seeing him win on tv and then he comes in as a really as in a competitive match against Furpo and whoever else he was going to put over. But Furpo was, you know, would come in there and he had the Grand Wizard as his manager, which was kind of cool. He was uh, short in stature. He was, I think, 5'7". He was an amazing guy. Great promos, wild looking hair, just uh, someone that you wouldn't want to be caught in a room alone with, you know, because he was very scary. And so he was like a wild man. Is that how you pronounce it? Like the wild man of the pompous. Yeah. Pampero Furpo. I mean, he was uh, just an incredibly wild performer, but a great, great worker. He was one of my favorites, actually. I, I just thought that he was uh, somebody that I used to love to see. I'm going to pull up a picture here. I mean, the, the people can't see it, but Timmy, you can. 
if you could oh, see yeah. that. Oh, yeah. He kind of like uh, like kind of like a Bruiser Brody-ish kind of beard there. Yeah, he uh, definitely had a wild, wild, crazy beard. He was something else, and he was very uh, smart businessman as well. And uh, Richie gave us some uh, other talking points, which I, this is what I love about Richie. He puts these things in here, and I go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Furpo retired from professional wrestling in October of 1986 after competing in 8,882 matches, which is amazing. After he retired... After 33 years of wrestling, you would think, you know, retire, you, you know, you go to Florida. Or no, he did another 25 years at the U.S. Postal Service in San yes. Jose, California, the same post office where the Wrestling Observer newsletter is shipped out of. Yes, uh, that's uh, how he ended his career as, a, as, a, as a, someone who worked for the post office. He was a family man. I mean, he he also had left the business. I think his his wife or one of his kids was sick for a, a really seriously ill, and he left wrestling to take care of her. What a wonderful man! I mean, his his daughter Mary is just it's told me so many great great stories, and uh, you could see actually the interview with her for anybody out there. It's uh you know on the uh, YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com slash pro wrestling spotlight. Just look for pro wrestling spotlight live, and just put in. Uh, Mary Furpo, John Arezzi, and you'll be able to find it, and you'll be able to hear some incredible stories about her dad. That's awesome. Let's go to match number five. Gorilla Monsoon and Sonny King defeated Ernie Ladd and Jimmy Valiant in 15 minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, uh, one which I really was all perked up for because Ernie Ladd was a major, major star, and I hadn't seen him really since the 60s when I was watching on TV. And the one thing I remember about Ernie was he always had his thumb taped up. That was kind of his gimmick, you know, and he'd always, uh, you know, the referee, he'd always hide from the referee, and then he'd jab the thumb, which was actually just the thumb with tape on it, white tape on it, and he, you know, hit the guy in the throat with it, and it would be like he got hit in the, in the throat with a baseball bat. But that was Ernie, and Ernie was so, so tall. I mean, he was a giant. He was an ex-football player. Yeah, he used to play for the, uh, yeah, I know, San Diego. San Diego. Was it San Diego? Was it the Kansas City Chiefs? Maybe I don't know. Maybe yeah. Maybe I know he, not. he played Maybe for not. the Chargers, and I know, I know he played for the Oilers. Um, oh okay. Sixty four, sixty five. He was with the Chargers, and sixty seven. He went to Houston. So when did they say Ernie the Cat Lad was a big dude? He really was a big dude. Oh my God, he was close to seven feet. How did that work when he wrestled Andre? So Andre's supposed to be this big thing. When a guy that yeah. big, who's about Andre's height, wrestles him. Do they mm-hmm. tell him, you know, like, okay, bend a little or, you know, don't stand up straight? I don't think so. I mean, go, you, know, you know, they always said Andre was 7'4", and uh, I don't believe that. You know, he might be, he might have been legit seven feet. Ernie uh, could have been 6'9", 6'8", 6'9", something, something like that. But Ernie was big, and uh, in his earlier years, he was kind of lanky. Uh, and then he just he put on a lot of weight, not fat, but just solid, big hulking individual who also was a great talker. He was a great promo guy. Uh, but it was it was really exciting to see Ernie at the Garden teaming up with handsome Jimmy Valiant uh, against Sonny King, who was another perennial favorite of the time. And of course, Gorilla Monsoon, who was just uh, over with the fans, probably second at this point to Morales. And he was tag teaming with uh, Jimmy Valiant. Explain to everybody what we were talking about uh, a few episodes ago. You you were going to St. Louis and you were supposed yeah. to do an interview with uh, Jimmy Valiant. Well, uh, yeah, I was there and uh, I wasn't supposed to do an interview with him, but it was uh, it was because we went to the hotel where they where everyone was staying. I was there with George Napolitano. It was a major show in St. Louis at the Keel Auditorium, which was really the only time I went there. Jimmy Valiant was booked to meet superstar Billy Graham for the WWF title in St. Louis. And also that night, uh, Harley Race uh, fought Jack Briscoe. Uh, no, Harley Race fought Dory Funk Jr. for the NWA title, and Jack Briscoe was on the card. It was a phenomenal show. But we get to the hotel, and there's uh, Jimmy, and I'd known him at least on a, on a peripheral level uh, by sh- shooting him and Johnny at Madison Square Garden in Philadelphia when he was uh, tag team champions with uh, you know the Valiant Brothers. So uh, I asked him, I, yeah, listen, can I do an interview? And he goes, yeah, absolutely, brother. You know, and uh, and then it was kind of like, you know what, man, you don't have to. You know, we don't have to do no tape record or anything like that. Just write what you want. Just write what you want. So my exclusive interview, the new handsome Jimmy Speaks, which is in the April 1978 issue of Ring Wrestling magazine. I'm um, looking at the article right now. And it just asked him, you know, when the values are coming back and just kind of a little bit uh, about his career. But 
uh, it was kind of a cool thing. And the photo I have with him was one of my favorites because um, I'm in my uh, polyester uh, leisure suit <laughs> and Jimmy's there, you know, looking dapper. And it was kind of a cool memory for me. But that's the way some of the guys work. Just write what you want. That's amazing. And, and can we put this article and show the magazine up on the Patreon? Yeah, actually, I will uh, I will scan it and we'll put it up on Patreon. I think that's a good idea to do something like that, actually. And then and then when we get to the Albano thing, I'll put that picture up. I'll start scanning. So there'll be attachments for patrons to see some really cool stuff. I, I think that's a great idea. And you just show me the magazine. It's it's cool that he, he gave you that thing. But basically, you just took anything, you, any research you already had on him, knowing things and you put. Yeah, together. and I just kind of like, uh, all right, what am I going to say? And you know, I just kind of put words in his mouth basically what what did he always call everyone baby did he call everyone ba- what did he call everyone all the daddy time? daddy hey daddy yeah 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 because when we did the, your convention yeah, just write what you want daddy just write right, what daddy. you want hey daddy can am i can i, can I get a break daddy Are we getting a break anytime soon yeah we got lunch coming up in about an hour okay daddy that sounds good can yeah. i <laughs> yeah this jimmy and jimmy um just getting back to him for a second he really had trimmed down from his days. I mean, because he, he turned into almost like a skeleton. I mean, if you really look at it over the years, but he was uh, pretty big for this match at the Garden uh, when he teamed with uh, Ernie Ladd. I mean, he was a pretty big guy. Uh, and even with the Valiant Brothers, pretty big guy. And then when I saw him in St. Louis, I was like, wow, you you know, you lost some weight here. And, uh, and you know, he had said that he lost about 30 pounds. And I incorporated that into the fictitious interview I did with him. I mean, the question was, Jimmy, it's been quite a while since we've seen you. What have you been up to? Well, right now you're looking at the new handsome Jimmy Valiant. I've trimmed down over 30 pounds, been working out, running, jogging, keeping fit and living a good life. My brother Johnny and myself have completed an extensive world tour. We're all over the globe, baby. Because I remember his promos. I wrote this interview based on how I think he would answer the questions. What John was doing right here is everything. Like when I worked in reality television, you would want to say, okay, how do I want them to say it? And you'd say right. it in their Nothing's voice. real. No. I mean- Especially on television. No. I mean, when I was on Deal or No Deal, you know, my sister and the infamous Donald Trump episode when uh, I fired Donald Trump on national TV. I mean, everything was kind of like from the producers or like they were feeding us um, Red Bull because they wanted us up and excited. And, you know, it was almost like it was a predetermined thing because they kept saying in between the commercial breaks, you know, because they wanted my sister to play to the end of the show for the whole hour, even though we were getting some offers, which maybe she should have taken. They'd come in the commercial breaks, you know, if... uh, you know, we we still have the right not to air this, you know, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of manipulation going on when it comes to any type of reality TV show or game show or anything like that. And let, let me just jump in on that, because this is my realm of expertise, if I have any realm of whatsoever. So what John is talking about is if you're on a game show, any game show and, and reality shows are not game shows. OK, remember, reality no. shows are not game shows. If you're on a game show, there's rules. There's rules you got to go by on a game show. That became because of the uh, the 21 scandal. Okay, now all shows, Survivor, uh, Amazing Race, any of the, of the talent shows are all called reality shows, so they can change it in any way. Why I'm telling you this? Yes. With shows that have prizes, and they don't want people to know who wins these shows, so you won't. If you lost, you don't go out and go, "Oh, John won, John won," before it airs. You can't do it. You can't do. It. You first you sign a contract, and the second yeah. thing is they have your money. If you're a second place winner, you'll get some money, but you won't get it if you tell people. Same thing if you're yeah. the winner, you won't get it, and also you won't get it unless it airs. Right. So if the show never airs, we will be talking on our Patreon coming up. John is going to ask me about this because I have a story about a TV show. It was one of the Rock of Loves kind of thing. It was called uh, For Love or Money. I think that was the right term for it. I, I got to check. And they did a whole episode that never aired, and I'll tell you why on the Patreon when we do it. Hmm. Sounds good, man. Yeah, it's good. Uh, let's get back to wrestling because that's what we're here for. Yeah, because um, wrestling is real. Wrestling is real. This is everything else. Reality show, funny, but you know, back in the day in 1972, we saw Chief J. Strongbow defeat Freddie Blassie by DQ, 10 minutes, 35 seconds. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a night that I was certainly wasn't happy with the outcome because you see Blassie in the ring. And of course, I was so excited to see him again. That was the highlight of my night. But seeing him uh, not get pinned, which was great, but to get disqualified uh, either by a low blow or biting Strongbow on the head, uh, whatever it cost that DQ at 10 minutes and 35 seconds. Uh, it was sad uh, to see Blassie because I knew that that was probably going to be the last time I'd seen him for a long time. 
And Blassie is the same boat as Stasiak was. He had two sellouts in a row, and then he loses the next time by DQ. Now, on the last episode in December, we talked about how you got a permission slip signed by Freddie. Now, how do you continue with that? How, how do you correspond? Because there is no Google. There, there, is, there no is no correspondence. There was no correspondence with me and Freddie for the entire year in 1972. I mean, I didn't hear from him until uh, uh, the newsletter started to come out. And I believe it took me months, you know, and I got the permission slip back. And then, all right, so what do I do? I, I uh, write a newsletter in the late summer, early fall of 72, issue one of King of Men. And then you send that out to the magazines and I'd send Jeff Walton the issues. And and then it wasn't until uh, I got that first letter from Freddie in March of 73. That was the first time he corresponded and acknowledged, you know, what a great job I was doing and invited me backstage into the garden in that March 73 show. So I didn't talk to Freddie Blassie that entire year of the 1972. When you did your first, um, the first newsletter you said yeah. came out in like September of 72. What, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What yeah. was in it? Were you just telling the history of Freddie Blassie in that one? Or what were oh, you doing? no, 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 no. It was, uh, there were features on Fred, articles on Fred, but I also would write up reports from the shows that I went to. The Garden had these many matches and I'd do a review. I'd have an editorial. And then in my uh, rudimentary, uh, I used to trace, I traced like you ever do you ever trace drawings like you put a thin sheet of paper like almost a clear through paper and and you trace something and i would do some trace uh drawings and put those in the newsletter in the beginning as well and what i really uh was different about from the other newsletters is that i would actually put a real like a little what they called them wallet size photos back then on the cover and i'd send that off to the uh to the members so uh, how did you find members, by the way? It was through the wrestling magazines. I mean, Georgianne Orsi was her name, later Georgianne Macropolis, uh, did a column. Tom Burke did a column for Ring. Jim Melby did a column for Wrestling Review. Uh, so they're all the newsstand wrestling magazines, with the exception of the after mags. They all had these fan club columns and uh, people who ran fan clubs or did newsletters would write and send samples to these columnists and uh, they would plug your newsletter. But they also wanted to make sure you were verified and had a permission slip. And, and, and yeah, you would send out the newsletters and, and then you'd get the plugs. And that's when, you know, I can't I, I remember when I first got my first subscriber, you know, for it was a two dollar and 50 cent a year uh, membership. And, uh, you know, I got an envelope filled with quarters, I believe. What, was that from Paul Heyman? Was it Paul Heyman? No, no, no. <laughs> Paul, uh, I think, joined uh, sometime in 73, end of 73, early 74. That's funny. So the first time you get quarters in an envelope. Yeah. Then I upped the, because uh, I, you know, I discovered that, you know, these things were a little costly in the postage and everything. The postage was cheap. It was like 10 cents or less or whatever it was. And I wasn't in it, you weren't in it to make any money, but um, I, I do remember um, just how costly it was coming. You know, I was a kid. Uh, so I upped the membership. I think it went up to five bucks for the year, but it was, you know, you'd get a newsletter. Uh, you try to put it out as often as possible, but uh, I think my newsletter came out every two or three months. That's still good. You were on the cutting edge even back then, John. Look at you, newsletter man. Yeah, I got a whole file folder of old of Freddie Blassie, King of Men issues in my uh, archives there. I don't have the first issue, though, which is really distressing to me. Well, we're going to have to maybe put them up on Patreon sometime. Anyone have King of Men issues out there, please send me an email, john at mattmemories.com, and I'll be more than happy to purchase that or trade you something really cool for it. Very cool. Very cool. Let's go to the final match of the night. Match number eight, Pedro Morales defeated Professor Toro Tanaka by disqualification, retaining his WWWF Heavyweight Championship by DQ in 18 minutes, 21 seconds. Salt in the eyes. That's what caused the DQ. Salt in it the was eyes. Tanaka always had that salt, and he'd sprinkle it in the corners before the match for his ritual. And then he'd always have a, a little bag of it in his trunks. And he threw some, got in Pedro's eyes or threw it. And maybe Pedro ducked and it hit the referee. And that caused the uh, DQ. Now, Professor Toro Tanaka also very famous, had 51 acting credits in movies yes. like The Last Action Hero, Pirates of the Caribbean, At World's End, The Running Man, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Now, I, I, I would have sworn Professor Toro Tanaka was in that Bond movie. He was in Goldfinger. I thought he was in Goldfinger. It was an actor, another wrestler uh, who looked a lot like Tanaka, who played Odd Job, and his name was Harold Sakata. 
okay. Sakata. All right. I, I have an action figure of him, actually. Did, throwing his uh, derby? Yeah, yeah. It'd be like this this action. You'd you know, move the arm and the, the hat would fly. On TV, it looked really, really good, but you got it home and it was like, you, you know, the hat would just drop out of the hand. <laughs> And I had the James Bond stuff. I had the James Bond attache case that they sold. Uh, I was into that uh, back when I was uh, a very young young boy. A Rizzi. John Arizzi. Arizzi, man. <laughs> so That's I, why I changed my name to John Alexander. Because you got tired of the Arizzi. <laughs> Everyone was like, yeah, no one ever gets, gets the name right. But that's okay. At the end of the Put, day, Tim Putchery. Yeah, you know how my name changes too. My name changes too, depending on what. Yeah, what I mean, you have in. those. Uh, you have those names with the vowels at the end, right? Yeah, you know, I so I was with my cousin over uh, over the holiday, and we were talking about our last name and mm-hmm. why it got changed the way it did is because at Ellis Island, uh, when my grandfather was checking in, they added a T instead of it should be P U T R E instead of P U T T R E. They, you know, they did that a lot, didn't they? They did that to my grandfather, too. My mom's dad, Anthony Gwerry, was the name, uh, G-U-E-R-R-I, but his actual name was Guerra, G-U-E-R-R-A. So they would do that. They would just kind of change your last name when you were getting into this country. It's like, what? I don't even know why. I think it was a pronunciation because my grandfather would say Putre, and he goes, oh, pooped, P-U-T-T-R-E. And that changed yeah. the whole pronunciation of it, and they moved into a German neighborhood, oh, so it's Putre, and really yeah. it's called Putre. So yeah, it's, it's it's crazy like that. How would you rate this card, John? How would you rate the card? Um, I wouldn't say it was one of my favorites. You know, it was like it was great because you know they hadn't been there since December six, so it was getting you know I needed my wrestling fix, and but it wasn't one of those shows that really stood out as um, a great card. I mean, for me, it was seeing Ernie Ladd, it was seeing Blassie, of course, uh, it was seeing Furpo for the first time live, and then there was a you know there was not a, a complete finish in the main event. There was a DQ, so you knew that the next month they were going to do a Texas Death Match or something like that, and. And uh, Morales wasn't going to lose anyway. It seems like there were a lot of great people on the card, but not a lot of great matches. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, a lot of star power in, in, in ways, but it wasn't one of those shows where you remembered it, it, it like indelibly in your head where other cards, you know, you would remember. There was not one match here that kind of, you know, was burned into my memory about it being spectacular or something that I'd remember 50 years later, Absolutely. even though it's hard to remember it anyway, 50 <laughs> years later. Absolutely. If you have any memories of Madison Square Garden, please shoot us an email at john at mattmemories.com. And of course, if you want to hear this show before the 50th anniversary, join the Patreon, www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Yes, uh, that would be the place where you get the show early. But one thing that I love about these shows is like, even though they are released, at bell time, 50 years to the day, you could find them on all of your platforms where you get your podcast and you listen to it at your leisure. And uh, it's really cool to uh, to be able to see it on Apple and to see it on Spotify and Odyssey and everywhere it's distributed. And please tell everybody about it. If, if you're in our age bracket, or even if you're younger and you want to learn about the history of wrestling at Madison Square Garden from the time period of 1971 through 76, 77, which was kind of like a golden era, this is kind of an interesting and unique podcast. And even though, you know, your your memory doesn't remember everything. So I like the backstories about the performers. I mean, uh, and then you get down to the meat, which is the actual show. It, it leads to some great conversation. And um, each and every month, you'll be able to hear it right here. And uh, we have so much more to go. I mean, my goodness. I mean, we're just getting started with 2022. And there's some really interesting things that start to happen in, in 72. And that brings Bruno back for a little run that that leads to him taking on Pedro Morales in September 30th of 72. Uh, and you see some really interesting uh, performers make their way into Madison Square Garden, the Mecca of Wrestling, uh, this year, 50 years ago, 1972. So I look forward to going over it each and every month with you, Tim. Absolutely. And if you want to be part of Patreon, we're going to be making this more of a companion piece to the Patreon. John's going to load up for this month the Jimmy Valiant interview he did 
um, with the yeah. wrestling magazine. We'll be doing that. We have every every month. We'll be trying to load in something different. If there's something, yeah, we- and I'll go I'll go deep into the archives on the photographs and see if I could find any of those little three and a half by three and a half pictures from even when I was sitting in the purple seats. <laughs> I'd love to see them. And that, that, that's the Patreon.johnarizzi.com. If, if you want to be part of it, we'd love to be part of the community, and that really helps with the show. If you're enjoying the show, you'll definitely love the Patreon. Uh, you certainly will. And, uh, you know, it's just been another great uh, episode. Just great to be here for another month uh, covering this history, Tim. And now next month, Professor Tanaka gets a return match against Pedro Morales. And after January, card booking for Pedro Morales takes a title. Um, it turns a little. He has to, I think they're starting to build up for the, their September show after this next month at Shea Stadium. So we'll be talking all about that. And once again, a shout out to Scott Teal. His book, Wrestling at the Garden, is amazing. I would like to thank Scott, of course, because uh, that is when it comes to Madison Square Garden wrestling. This is the Bible. It's called Wrestling in the Garden, the Battle for New York, works, shoots and double crosses, as well as an index of every show at Madison Square Garden that took place uh, from the very first one. And this covers uh, the era that really finishes when the book was uh, published. So does every garden show right through the end of December 2016. It's a great reference book. It has backstories. Uh, it has uh, all the shows, all the performers. There's an index in the back of the people who performed at Madison Square Garden. You can get it at crowbarpress.com. And that's Scott Teal's company. He has amazing, amazing collection of historical books there at uh, his website, Great publisher, Crowbar Press, and this uh, garden uh, reference guide really is like twenty four ninety five, and it's just uh, like I said, it's my bible when it comes to Madison Square Garden wrestling. And, and you know, you've been to so many shows; they all start blending together. So it's great to pull out the book and go, "Okay, oh, I do remember this," or "Oh, I remember that." Right, and uh, and the stories that he that he has here, like memories by Jimmy Valiant talking about his uh, working at Madison Square Garden, and they also have photographs and clippings, uh, the advertisements that were there in the New York Daily News, and there's photographs and. Uh, so it really is uh, really cool. And pictures of the programs and magazines. And uh, there's a lot of the, what they call memories. And uh, and it's everyone from Jimmy Valiant to Don the Spoiler Jardine. I'd highly recommend it if you were a fan of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, especially during this golden era. It's a, it's a must have. Excellent. Anything else, John? No, I think we're good, man. You just wrap it up and we're done. Till next month, you've been listening to 50 Year Flashback at Madison Square Garden for John Rizzi and Richie Garcia. I'm Tim Poutre. We'll see you next time. 